Welcome back to the Imperfect Buddha Podcast and this um, new episode which is coming out just before Easter. An Easter in Italy and presumably across the world, which is one of confinement and of ongoing quarantine. We in Italy have been in quarantine for over a month and it's been a total lockdown for that period. So no going out even for a nice walk in the local park or stretching your legs. Stay at home or io resto a casa, which is the phrase used by one and all here. And it's uh, kind of interesting, you know, like so many things, we humans uh, adapt and get used to it and it becomes the new normal. And it's kind of interesting, as I hinted at in the previous episode, to see much of the Western world playing catch-up with the situation, which for us is it's just kind of the norm, or the new norm. And it's interesting to see how different countries are reacting to this condition. The Brits are actually being far more rebellious than usual, far more rebellious than the Italians, who are notorious for that kind of thing. And it's kind of stupid, having experienced the impact of the virus here and its real-world reality-shaping consequences, I've been saddened to see that both Britain and America have not really learned from the mistakes made by Italy, but are either repeating them, and in some cases, doing worse than we did. The other sad thing is to see just how many conspiracy theories are going around. But if you've been listening to the podcast regularly, you'll notice that I increasingly push this division, which I actually think marks our current age, and it's that between fantasy and reality. And yes, I know uh, some of our scientists and some of our more philosophically-minded listeners will suddenly jump up and say, what? You can't say reality? But, you know, I don't mean necessarily a big metaphysical statement about the nature of perception, etc., etc. But are we talking absolute bullshit? Or are we trying to base our opinions and ideas on some kind of connection to the real world and events that are actually happening? Conspiracy theorists have seen all manner of great truth with a capital T according to their mythologies within the events of the quarantine. I personally find conspiracy theories fascinating. I used to entertain them myself. A lot. But that was when I was in my late teens, early 20s. I went to see the infamous David Icke speak in Bath with my ex-wife and found the whole experience to be illuminating. But 20 years on, that's really not the case anymore. And I find it quite sad to see some old friends and acquaintances of mine from that period who are also in their 40s still entertaining the absurdities and the convenient truths of conspiracy theorists. This is at a time where in Italy we've seen this division sharper than it's ever been between reality and fantasy as all kinds of ridiculous ideas have circled around about how to deal with this virus. And there's a long line of course that runs from the extremes of David Icke and Alex Jones to the acceptance or the lazy adoption of fake news spread by people who have no idea what they're talking about. And one of the challenges we are going to have to face and are being forced to face actually right now as we continue to deal with the pandemic and what comes after is how capable we are of managing our relationships with experts and expertise more broadly. This could be a long conversation and it's not the topic of the podcast today, so I shan't go any further with this, but one does wonder how much of this anti-expert, pro-conspiracy behaviour is fundamentally misanthropic, how much of it is really a deep hatred or distrust of our basic shared humanity. This is a topic that's picked up on by today's guest. But before we get there, I have a quick introduction that I want to present. And it was inspired by this tweet. The gift you offer another person is just your being. Baba Ram Das. This was tweeted out by Lama Surya Das on the 7th of April 2020, right in the middle of this COVID-19 pandemic, and right in the middle of its ascent in the USA with New York suffering thousands of deaths from the virus. Surya Das, a.k.a. Jeffrey Miller, was born in New York, as far as I'm aware, which makes the tweet even more interesting. 
but it also makes you wonder why would somebody who is apparently so learned, so awake and so clued up and so compassionate tweet such a nonsensical idea in the heart of such a horrendous crisis. It is just a tweet, right? And one mustn't judge. And, well, perhaps it's really the semiotic value of the thing that matters. That's a nice word, semiotic, and our guest will be talking about that too. This tweet, though, represents a legacy of sorts, of a spirituality that is focused in and on the self. And even when it practices compassion and care for others or social justice, it's really fundamentally all about you. And that's what it comes down to, self-centeredness. And doesn't Baba Ramdas's tweet kind of betray that idea? Now, this kind of spirituality that we're all familiar with is a cultural practice, yeah? It's one that was developed and matured within the confines of very specific social groups and within a specific wave in recent human history. There are, of course, perennial aspects to it that no doubt echo across history, but its particular configuration this time round was unique to this time and place. And just as the legacy of an all-knowing God lingers in the background of so much of our actions in the West today, so too today the legacy of a century of self-focused spirituality hangs around us like a stinky old sock. And to my mind, its stink can be picked up or picked up on in the innocent gestures of teachers and their followers, rather like Lama Surya Das. In fact, such a message as Ram Das's is so loaded with unintended meaning that its twittering highlights just how delusional certain social narratives were and are and will continue to be. This kind of vision of the world, of you being just what you are, and that being the essence of which you truly must offer to the world, appears utterly ridiculous in the light of our present circumstances. Of course, I say this self-consciously. I, too, have been seduced into the game of a true, authentic self, or nature, that I dreamed I would be able to share with others in a sort of mutual recognition of our innermost essence. Of course, it always had a sickly sweet flavour to it, and some people love hanging out in that kind of qualitative space. But for me, that was not possible. It was saccharin, kind of like donuts with too much sugar, Ben & Jerry's over-flavoured ice cream, or all-you-can-eat buffets. Perhaps the worst thing about that kind of goal is that it was often sold as a final destination. Because it's a fantasy, and it doesn't really make much sense with what we know today, it was something that was always out of reach. Or a kind of fantasy that one would hang out in within the group dynamic or within the radiance of the guru. And of course, the guru was fed by all of this, fed by the practice, fed by the myth. And both guru and follower, in a way you could be argued, were feeding a mythological god, one with a very large belly that could never be filled. And the funny thing is, if you look back at this historically, reality always has had and hopefully always will have a way of screwing up such a dreams. And of course, some of our conspiracy theory gurus were gurus too. But of course, the basic message of that wave of American and Western spirituality was that your self-expression, your experience of you, was your greatest gift. Not money to the poor, not medicine to the sick, vaccines to poor countries ridden by disease, not a home or shelter to the homeless, and not your active participation in democracy so that we might keep the likes of Trump out of power. Nope, it's special little you. Just be yourself, express yourself. Now, doesn't that all sound rather familiar? Doesn't it sound rather like a middle-class parent's encouragement? its privileged little saintly child. Just be who you are, darling, and the world will love you for it. Look, I, I could go in many directions with this, but I want to keep this short and I don't want to make you suffer more than you need to. I have a confession to make and I, I am a Generation Xer and so I carry that seed, well, of cynicism and sarcasm in me. And I actually wrote a pretty sarcastic tweet in response to Surya Das's. But then I didn't publish it. And I find myself doing that more often because what's the point? Yeah? What's the point? I don't have anything to hide. I don't need to fake the appearance of being a nice, good person. 
and I'm not actually much of either of those, if I'm honest. But I increasingly believe that we should feed the good, that we should promote understanding. It goes back, I guess, to that larger principle of the Bodhisattva. Can you actively reduce ignorance and suffering in the world around you? Can you? Well, if you can, then you should. And it's easy to take lazy shots, cheap shots at old gurus selling antiquated fantasies. But why should we be selective in our care? We should care for these guys too. Make a sensible comment. Why not? I mean, let's be honest. Self-righteousness gets a grip on us, all of us. And I've been caught by it. It's an easy, lazy game. And let's be honest about this too. Rarely has a mind been swayed by a sarcastic comment. In fact, as far as I can tell, they merely make clever smug people feel more clever and more smug. We need to interrogate the history of the kind of ideas still proposed by Surya Das and Ram Das's legacy. It needs to be seen as a man-made, historically located wave of human history that has precedence and that suffers from the same affliction of all waves of human culture. A general blindness to its own forms, norms and desires and of course, you've heard it on this podcast before, it's confusion around the fact that his vision of the world is not the world. Ram Das, Surya Das and others brought us a beautiful vision, very radiant, wonderful, full of desire and dreams and practices and beliefs that have done wonderful things. Once we free these periods of human practice from being or having to be, universal reality capturing systems then they can be reconsidered we can keep some of the good stuff of them but we can do so hopefully with a commitment to reducing ignorance and not just raising personal pleasure and happiness false promises and well often delusional claims we do have this burden after all and we just can't get round it now let's get on to our guest and she is Dr. Ashley Frawley, and she's a professor of sociology in Wales. And she's the author of an interesting book called The Semiotics of Happiness. So, of course, we'll be looking at that in our conversation, which is wide-ranging. But really, the, the essence of the conversation comes down to the role of the individual in society and the interplay between the individual and ideas such as happiness, well-being, mindfulness, personal development. And there's a lot going on there, and you may not be aware of it all. And what happens as well, if societies start believing that the goal of society should be happiness. Now, Ashley has studied the development of public ideas of well-being, wellness, mental health, and of course, mindfulness. And she finds a trajectory running through all of them of an increasing burden being placed on the individual to be responsible for all of their problems. And how at the same time, necessarily, the human becomes seen as problematical and as the cause of all social ills. This makes sense if we think of a society that sets the individual up as the locus of meaning. Minus religion. Minus God. Minus the big political projects of the last century everything comes down to you. So you must not only struggle to make sure that you are happy, mindful and well-adjusted, but you must also make sure that you are in no way a burden on the world outside. The self is placed at the heart of society as the source of social problems then, and it goes deeper and deeper as new technologies of self are developed. Each subsequent technology replaces the pre-existing technology and the same fundamental idea warps and shifts and changes. And all of this within a context in which societies are ever more focused on the present and lose any desire or vision of the future. In fact, one quote that Ashley shares, in a society that has no future, the present gains exponentially in importance. Now think about that and the implications of it as you think about what's going on in Western Buddhism. Now, some of the topics we cover in this episode include whether happiness has actually increased or decreased after decades of experimentation with all kinds of practices from self-esteem to self-development and to mindfulness. 
We talk about the present moment versus the future, and whether mindfulness is already on the wane. Ashley covers spiritual narratives more broadly, and the tendency for them to become the one cure to save them all, or magical bullets. She talks about mindfulness and its connection to pessimism and control. We look at the lingering effects of the new age and its utopian desire, the loss of tradition, and our commitment to something greater than ourselves. Finally, misanthropy comes up. It's not just conspiracy theories, folks, but it's going on within this kind of thinking, too. What should we know about Dr. Ashley Frawley to make sense of the work you are doing and have been doing on things like happiness and the relationship between the individual and society? So my research really looks at um, the way that these kind of emotion keywords or, or keywords that relate to uh, the individual management of the self, really, or um, individual psychology and so on, how these keywords um, function in public discourses about social problems. In the main, I look at um, newspaper discourses using these keywords, and I study um, how they emerge into the public sphere how they're used by a variety of groups. And I like looking at newspapers because you see um, a lot of different groups using uh, a keyword in, in particular ways according to their interests. And then they meet each other in the public sphere and something new develops through that kind of debate and argument and through encou encountering opposition and so on. So I think that that's a very interesting sort of public site. I also look at the effects of these keywords on social policy. Uh, to a certain extent, I look at self-help books and popular books, um, and then the institutionalization, that is the the um, use of these concepts in organizations and, and, as I said, in policy. So that's what I'm really looking at. I wrote a book, um, published a book in 2015, looking at happiness and the emergence of happiness as a as a social problem. And what I mean by that is that happiness came to be seen as, or not came to be seen as, but came to be advocated as both a problem in itself and a solution to social problems. And so that book describes how that happened, what form that took, because, you know, obviously happiness has as many meanings as there are people. When it became sort of picked up in the public sphere, it became something else entirely. And that's very interesting. I think that these keywords become a mirror for the culture. And we can understand a lot about our culture and the way that it understands individuals, the way that it understands the relationships between individuals and social problems um, through the way we use these words and the meanings that they come to possess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Semiotics of Happiness is a great title for a book. Uh, really good. Did you choose that one yourself? I absolutely did not, no. And <laughs> I've regretted it many times since it's an, my editor. Yeah. Um, I, I'm terrible with titling things as well. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it, it's I, I basically I jump off the work of some anthropologists and sociologists of social problems who look at them as semiotic processes, as, as processes of, of meaning making, as um, cultural symbols, as sort of conduits for a wide range of cultural anxieties and um, cultural forms and, and understandings. And at its heart, it's a ba it's basically an understanding of what it means to be human mm -hmm. and studying how what it means to be human and what it means to be an, an individual in society and how that's changed um, and how these words sort of reflect that. That's what I look at. That's why I look so much at language and so on. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because this kind of social process sort of creeps up on us. It's not something we're generally aware of, right? What do you think are some of the key insights that emerge from that work? And also, how has your understanding evolved or changed since you actually wrote it? So one of the key insights um, is actually what, what you just said. You said it's interesting how these things sort of creep up on us. Um, and that's absolutely right. So when you see something on the, in the headlines or on the front page of newspapers, you, we tend to think that it's there because the problem got so pressing that society couldn't help but notice, right? We think that there is a one-to-one -one relationship between the severity of a social problem and our worry about it. Um, but that's not the case. Um, and in, you know, these studies, in, in sociological studies of social problems, one of the key insights is that 
actually there's quite frequently a mismatch between <laughs> our level of anxiety about an, an issue, cultural anxiety about an issue, and its severity. So, for example, the, the very famous one is the satanic panic in the 90s, mm-hmm. right? So there's no yeah. evidence that, that there were ever any satanic cults. <laughs> yeah. um, but people really thought, you know, people went to jail and it was all over the place. And there's no evidence that it ever existed. Um, and so we can worry quite a lot about something without any basis in reality. And so one of the insights of my study on on happiness was the way that when it started, when happiness started making headlines, people said, well, obviously it's because as a society, we've become very unhappy. And then the question was, well, why are we so unhappy? And then a lot of studies, a lot of you know sociological studies, psychological studies went into looking at, well, why are we so unhappy? But actually, even according to the studies themselves, and the initial studies that made the headlines, it, nobody was any unhappier than they had ever been. In fact, the problem that they had identified or that they had constructed was that we are just as happy as we've ever been. <laughs> and that nothing had changed since they started doing these happiness surveys in the, 19, in late, 19, in the late 1940s. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's in itself, initially, if you, if, when I studied the discourse, that in itself was actually initially portrayed as good news. We're just as happy as we've ever been. The same amount of people are very happy. We're doing quite well as a society. And then it changed. The The data didn't change. The data changed the same, uh, stayed the same. But what happened was the, the key moment was when claims makers began to plot that relentlessly straight line of happiness against GDP. And they started to say, in spite of huge increases in economic growth, or whatever they would sometimes say income, which is <laughs> debatable, we are no happier than before. So then what's the point of all this uh-huh. GDP? And then that was what really took off. I spent a lot of time looking at that claim and I try to make sense of where it came from because like scientifically, it's actually not all that convincing because you're comparing, <laughs> it wouldn't be possible. You, you, you're measuring happiness on a three-point scale, whereas GDP can theori- theoretically increase forever. But also that's not why societies grow. Uh-huh. It's not a search it's an internal dynamic within capitalism. The way that I understand it is that it's um, a sort of romantic anti-capitalism. Right. Uh, so it's a, a rejection of capitalism on the basis of past values mm-hmm. uh, rather than a sort of future-oriented capitalism. So um, Christopher Lash has this line where he says, uh, in a society that has no future, the present gains exponentially in importance. So society has no future. You know, in the past was terrible. <laughs> so even the sort of romanticism is kind of like this presentist romanticism. Just hold on to the present. Uh-huh. No more movement. Becomes a critique of change in a way. Yeah. But of course, we don't have that power. We can't just stop the world and get off. <laughs> so from my view, we have to understand the forces of history rather than re- rejecting them in imagination. Yeah. Um, and I think that this that's how this discourse kind of functioned at the time. Uh-huh. Now, of course, it waned. And when I finished that book, as I was writing the last chapters, I started to notice that happiness was giving way to new discourses, to well-being. And after I finished the book, I noticed that well-being was eliding with mental health. And so I thought that was interesting. And so I started to go back and I realized that there were lots of discourses even before happiness that um, basically performed a a similar function uh, and told a very similar story about human beings. And so I started to study uh, in the book that I'm writing right now, um, I started to look at the way that one discourse began to give way to another, self-esteem, to happiness, to well-being, to mental health. And I look back further and, and I noted, well, there was mental hygiene before that. And before that, there was new thought. They change each time. They're not totally the same. Each time the problem of the self that is placed at the heart of society, that is located at the source of most social problems, but gets deeper and deeper. And essentially, the narrative is that we can't really solve social problems except through changing individuals, that the problem is really individual psychology, mentality, behavior, um, and our inability to um, adequately control these things. Uh, And the basic recipe is, yes, okay, we know that, you know, some intractable intractable problem like... um, inequality or something like that. Yes, okay, we've been trying to deal with this for a very long time. But (laughs) before we can ever figure out how to deal with it, first, we must promote X in individuals, some kind of 10 step process to know the real you. And then somehow, some way, all the problems will be solved. So it's quite fuzzy how the problems will be solved. But yeah. somehow, some way, all the problems will be solved. And one kind of um, cycle within this was mindfulness. So I, I started to look at mindfulness, and, and it was the same story. In order for Y ever to be solved, first we must promote X. 
within individuals and then somehow some way through you know self-efficacy or you know having an ordered mind and being more in touch with you know um your surroundings and so on somehow some way the problems will be solved but what's interesting about mindfulness is that it is slightly more pessimistic so self-esteem and happiness explicitly promise to be panaceas they're going to inoculate people. And actually, mindfulness does use the social vaccine language as well. We're, by promoting this, we're going to we're going to vaccinate people from social problems. Mm. But it's it also says, in a way, the world is so complex that we can't possibly understand it. And so what we can do is to protect ourselves and have some kind of little base within ourselves where we can be free. And so that the place of freedom gets turned more and more inwards, um, which is the same in a lot of these discourses. Like the, the only thing that you can control is yourself. That's the place where human activity has the most meaning. But it, it doesn't actually say that you can change anything. Like that's the thing that I found the most interesting was that initially it's a magic bullet. John Kabat-Zinn was like, it solves everything. <laughs> We're to get to the root of all social problems, people. <laughs> Not social structure, not capitalism, not social class. People, it's in your head. The problems mm -hmm. are in your head. CEOs, without a hint of self-awareness, would say things like, mindfulness is great. It's the ultimate in mind control. <laughs> like, no, and like nobody reflected on how that was weird and creepy. But as time went on, it became more and more um, pessimistic. And this is partially in response to counterclaims. So there was a lot of pushback. Mm. People did accuse it of being like a panacea and they say no it does, it's not a panacea it doesn't solve anything yeah. <laughs> and that, yeah. i found that to be very interesting because that was a bit of a shift a lot of these discourses reflect that we've given up on solving social problems in meaningful ways that we've kind of saying we don't really have the solutions we, we keep trying we keep failing and mm -hmm. this one is kind of saying acceptance yeah i think you've uh, highlighted quite a few points that we've come across in the the history of the podcast and i was thinking quite recently about two things I think it'd be really interesting to see a well-written social historical analysis of this discourse that you've presented part of. And I think it's interesting to add into that the role of the New Age, which doesn't get spoken about so much, but a lot of the discourse I hear popping up here and there seems to be filled with the same kind of naive desire that I grew up in in the 90s in the UK, very much surrounded by the New Age world. Just to add in one point, because some listeners will not be aware of, of why I brought you on, although I think some of what you've just said uh, should make that obvious, was that I was listening to uh, a TV program that you were part of called The Big Question, which took place quite recently. And I'd actually come across your work before that, primarily through Zero Books and an interview you did with uh, Douglas Lane. But I enjoyed a particular exchange that took place on that program, which kind of highlights part of what you're getting at already in our conversation today, which is where there was a, a Buddhist nun on there and I think it was a psychiatrist, if I'm not wrong, who was also a, a Hindu priest. And they were talking about mindfulness and talking about this present moment that you've just critiqued. They were very much expressing the same kind of discourse you hear from a whole variety of people who promote mindfulness these days. They were talking about the idea of focusing on happiness and the individual and the breath and the present moment. And you came back to that point, which I thought you expressed very clearly, but then it was sort of ignored, that actually suffering makes life meaningful and trying to retreat from suffering or the difficulties of life into some kind of interior retreat space so that you may be happy kind of misses the point. Do you still hold to that view? And is there something else you'd like to add to it? Um, yeah, I mean, it's easy to misunderstand that. When I say that suffering makes life meaningful, I'm not like bigging up suffering, like, oh, we should all suffer. <laughs> sure, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, I think that we should, not we should, we do, and human beings throughout history have always focused on something beyond themselves, mm. some project beyond themselves that is more important and bigger than their own individual life. So, you know, self-sacrifice for your family or for your religion or whatever was always just something that people did as a matter of course. And it still exists in lots of places that are sort of steeped in tradition. And I don't want to romanticize this because I'm not necessarily saying we should go back with it. This is a good thing. I'm just saying this is the difference between now and the past is that like, for example, my husband was born in like a little village in Greece in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Mother was married at 14 because, you, you know, you don't date. That's what you do. You know, you, you, you get married, you have children. That's what you do. And I always notice that my husband does a lot of things just out of duty. Like 
well, that's just what a man does. That's mm-hmm. just what a father does. That's just what you do. And he doesn't give it any thought. Whereas me, every darn thing that I do is an existential crisis because <laughs> I am I am cut loose from tradition. Mm. So when I was a teenager, I would ask my dad, you know, what should I do? What should I study? And he would say, you do what makes you happy. And I'm like, I don't know what that is. You tell me. You know, <laughs> you tell me what to do. Mm. Give me some rules. Tell me exactly how I'm supposed to live because there were no rules. And where did I find these rules? I found them in like self-help books, 10 mm. steps the real you 10 steps to happiness don't you know <laughs> don't you know be, save your happiness up for the future be happy now you know i started to criticize these things because i i very much was part of that you know i was right, very yeah. much the culture myself and that and i started to realize you know kind of what it was doing to me that i was becoming very self-obsessed and i noticed that the more the purpose of my life was anchored in my own self my own feelings the more miser- miserable i became because if the whole point of your life is emotional well-being well any kind of upset is unbearable (laughs) because it's like an attack on your purpose in life and but no human being can be happy all the time so i don't want to fetishize suffering my point is you have to live for something beyond yourself some project that makes life meaningful not because it makes life meaningful not because it makes you suffer not because it makes you happy but because it's worthwhile so for instance, like journalists who will go on hunger strikes in prison, they're not doing it because of emotional well-being. They are undertaking a sacrifice for something that is worthwhile, press freedom and freedom of, spe- of speech, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's not that I'm saying, oh yeah, they should suffer. It's that that project makes that suffering bearable. And so what I'm saying is that what's happened is our meaning in life, our anchors for truth and purpose have turned inwards within the self. And there are no longer any sort of collective projects that human beings are involved in that give our lives meaning. Mm. And so we have this sense of meaninglessness. And so what happens is people will come in and try to give you this, like what what I (laughs) gravitated to as a teenager, like these rules for living. You know, they, we have, we're cut off from tradition. Nobody tells us exactly how we're supposed to live. And so we want rules, you know, tell us how to live. Give my life meaning, give my life purpose, give it mm-hmm. to me ready-made in a book. Well, it doesn't really work like that. Human beings need collective projects, projects that are shared, projects that are future-oriented, where we can have real agency um, and ability to act on the world and change it. I feel like that's gone now. We don't really feel like as individuals we can come together and, and change the world for the better. In fact, it's even when I'm saying this, I'm thinking of like terrorism and how that scares me because that's like the last sort of bastion for this kind of thinking and it's horrifying. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, these people are living for something beyond themselves. Bah, that's that's sure. awful. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's really terrifying. Of course, the yeah. meaning is outside of Earth, right? It's not... Yeah. Um, <laughs> But every time that human beings have tried to do that, you know, if you look in the 20th century, our big projects to change the world all turned out horribly. Mm. Um, And that fear has led us to this very inward kind of the only thing you can change is yourself, be the change you want in the world and so on. It's also led us to this kind of misanthropy where we don't think that human beings can change the world. And also we think that human beings trying to change the world is the root of all problems. And there and the sense that really, at the end of the day, human nature will just mess everything up. Um, And so you see this very sort of misanthropic streak, this sense of human beings as completely incapable, even of managing, like it used to be the only thing you can change is yourself. Now we're kind of even saying, "Mm, maybe not even that, (laughs) you know, just like retreat and escape. Mm -hmm. So yeah, sorry, I've I've gone off on a bit of a tangent. (laughs) But the idea is that I don't want to fetishize suffering. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying that we've lost these sort of bigger human projects or uh, collective projects um, that make life meaningful. Yeah. I think part of your, I don't, what should I call it? <laughs> you said you went off on one. It's not a rant, but your presentation. I think it's kind of reflective of the time we live in, in which there are so many issues all at once that it can be quite difficult to know where to draw a line or which part is most important or deserving of our attention. When you're speaking about some of these issues, what comes to my mind is that it's true what you're saying, and I think your observations are important, but at the same time, there is truth in the claims by those selling self-help books and offering mindfulness as a cure for all. I wonder to some degree if we were not to accumulate these steps in human understanding, we could think about them in two ways. One is that they present us with a number of problems that we're unwilling to think about seriously. So, you know, if we look at the self-help movement, it does actually raise a number of issues which are important and that perhaps we should reflect on, but then it doesn't quite provide enough basis for us to evolve collectively 
in our understanding of those issues. And then that mutates or transforms into other, you know, modalities of practice. And we find this lingering issue of the role of individual in society and the role of society in forming the individual remaining as this kind of dichotomy that people still lazily drift, you know, into one side or the other. And I think one of the the issues that we're really challenged by today, whether you're in the academy or outside, or you're just somebody that thinks about these topics, is how can we evolve enough conversation amongst intellectuals and those who actually have some idea or some intellectual tools to think about these ideas critically to start to resolve some of that conflict between the individual in society and the society and the individual? Because it is partially true that individuals must develop themselves, right? If we think about the coronavirus quarantine that we're living through, there's a resurgence of stoicism. And of course, you know, the stoics in many ways promote self-discipline and taking a, an appropriate attitude towards life, dealing with your own thoughts and feelings. But one thing that distinguishes them, I guess, from the sort of self-help narcissism we see in sort of saturating various forms of uh, the sort of focus on the self in, the, well, in this century is that it, it doesn't tend to give much consideration to pain as important or your, your self as an identity is fundamentally important. It doesn't tend to promote that victimhood that we've seen saturate various areas of, of what should be intellectual culture and life. So there you go, I've rambled on a little bit myself there. But, uh, <laughs> but I do wonder if you've given any thought to resolving that conflict or that apparent dichotomy and how that would play out in a society that might be willing to have an honest conversation about happiness and its ephemeralness and the relationship between the individual and their duties and responsibilities, and the same for wider society, whether, you know, at the local community level or within a university department or within, you know, a huge organization that is the European Union. So there you go. Do you have any thoughts on any of that? Yeah, I think that um, part of what people, why people are looking so much to the inner lives of individuals is because they feel themselves to be confronted by insoluble problems. It's kind of like having a gun and someone saying, well, you got to shoot it. And so you shoot yourself in the foot. <laughs> um, so you have no idea how to solve these problems, but people are saying, well, you got to do something. So you go, okay, well, let's have mindfulness training in schools. Well, mindfulness training in schools isn't going to do anything about, for example, inequality or poor educational attainment amongst particular social classes, because those problems are not down to people's inability to control themselves. Those are structural problems. And because we cannot deal with those social problems, uh, those structural problems, and because we've lost the vocabulary even to talk about them in a structural way, we, be we gravitate more and more to these individual solutions. And of course, they don't work you know, self-esteem didn't do what it promised. Um, but we still have those problems. And so by the time the um, criticism comes up and says, look, this didn't do what it said, it doesn't matter because there's nobody, nobody's attached to it anymore. They're on to the next thing. And in fact, a lot of the critics of one movement become the um, owners of the next. So a lot of the critics of self-esteem were the owners of happiness. So um, Martin Seligman, is a key example of this. It's like he's got a little surfboard and he's riding the next, he's always waiting for the next wave. He's, you just want to know what's the fad right now, just what is Martin Seligman writing about? So he wrote a book about self-esteem, but then he he criticized self-esteem for being expanded to solve every problem and in so doing, um, solving nothing, for meaning everything, therefore meaning nothing. And then he puts forward a new discourse, happiness, which solves every problem <laughs> and does the exact same thing, right? And so it takes about, it, I, these cycles, they take about 10 years to play themselves out and then die. It takes time to gather evidence for these programs and to say, look, they don't work. And But by the time that evidence comes to light, people are on to the next thing. So the question is, why is there this appetite for these kind of individualized solutions? Well, I just said that we've lost this structural language, this ability to talk about social problems in any other way. So we have these sort of perennial issues of capitalist society that we are more or less powerless to deal with. I don't think we're powerless to deal with them, but I think that they are parts, uh, they, they grow out of the essential workings of the system and its proper functioning, not even its breakdown, its proper functioning produces these kinds of issues. And we can't really deal with them. And, and the solutions would be far more radical than a policymaker would be willing to stand up and say. And so we have this never ending kind of appetite for these magic bullets. I now, once and for all, will provide the solution that we've not been able to get. Of course, I think there's this exhaustion as well for these, these magic bullets. 
And then the magic bullets kind of say, well, really, we'll just kind of um, shield people from the worst effects. If you go underneath all of these discourses, the essential belief is the reason why our solutions don't work or the reason why we have, for example, persistent capitalist crises or whatever is because there's something wrong with people. It's not our models. It's not our solutions. It's you. If you would just act right, if you just do the right thing, then we wouldn't have these problems. And yet people stubbornly refuse to act in the way that economists or psychologists or social modelers say that they should. And instead of asking questions about your models, you ask questions about human beings. You say, oh, it must be something within human nature that ultimately solves this or, or something about this sort of pathological society kind of idea that society comes in and infects the individual and makes them act in this bad way and we can just come in and give them the tools that they need to act right and behave right. And I think this actually goes back very, very far. Um, and you can see it starting to emerge as early as the 18th century um, and the 19th century um, reaction to the Enlightenment. So you had in the French Revolution all these wonderful lofty ideals, liberty, equality, fraternity. Um, but when people looked out into the world, they saw the opposite. They saw unfreedom, inequality, war. And so that gap between the ideals of the society and the reality of the society needed to be explained. For socialists and communists that were influenced by Marx, the answer was that the economic base of society was not developed enough to make these ideals real. We can talk about equality, but so long as we live in a society based fundamentally on inequality, on the, on the value relation, which is um, so all profit and all surplus value ultimately comes from human labor. It is basically uh, an exploitative system, according to Marxists, at its core. We will never have equality because the basis of the society is inequality. It is right down to the fundamental unit of society. You will not do away with that until you do away with that particular way of making and exchanging commodities. It's the economic base, they said. We must change that to make these values real. To push the French Revolution to its radical and logical conclusion, we must move beyond this particular mode of production. But on the other side, the right wing of the, uh, of the romantic reaction, they said, no, no. The reason why these things haven't come to fruition is because of human difference. Some people are just smarter than others. Some people are just stronger than others. There are different races. There's human difference. So there's a right wing of that, which became eugenics. And then there was kind of a left wing of that, which became this sort of celebration of human difference in the Volksgeist. This explanation of the gap between our ideal society and our real society is increasingly being explained, in, not in that left wing way, <laughs> but in that kind of right wing way, which said, Look, it's, it's human difference. It's something within human beings that ultimately explains why we have social problems. Mm -hmm. So if you look at like Vilfredo Pareto, an early sort of economist, well, economist sort of sociologist, you develop these sort of equilibrium models of capitalism. It's this beautiful system. Look at it. I've, got, I've worked it out in the math. It, it wonderfully, perfectly equalizes just like nature. Then when he, look, he looks out at the world, he sees the exact opposite. The equilibrium doesn't exist. And, and over time, he becomes more and more frustrated with human beings. Why don't you act the way my model says you should? And later in life, he became more obsessed with human psychology. Instead of questioning his models, Pareto questioned the human subject, that liberal subject that bore the French Revolution on whose back was built our liberal democratic societies. That's a myth. The liberal subject is a myth. People are not rational. People are not actually capable of freedom. And he became more and more enamored with fascist movements as well, which were very suspicious of the human ability to deal with democracy. I think Pareto is a pretty good metaphor for contemporary society, that we've become more and more frustrated with human subjects. Instead of questioning what we're doing, our models, our solutions, we question human beings. And so we have this appetite for endless magic bullets whose focus is the human being. First, promote X within individuals, and somehow, some way, finally, at last, we will solve these problems. Mm -hmm. One thought that popped to my mind while you were speaking is that the the ideal of equality, though, it seems to be a bit of a mirror to the, the panacea of the idea of happiness or some other pill, because if we accept that human beings are varied and complex, then the idea that we could somehow have some ideal social cure for our individual problems doesn't work either, right? There seems to be a need for us to, like I was saying before, find some more intelligent and well thought out 
and evolving process of finding a healthier balance between the need for individuals to evolve and mature and develop capacities and skills and therefore become more intelligent, well-versed and perhaps critical thinking members of a society or organisation and the need for a society to have some kind of duty to its citizens without trying to force its ideals or models on them. Yeah, I mean, equality is not something that you would force on anybody. Equality is something that emerges. There's an idea of what Marxism is, and then there's what Marxism actually is. So equality is not some some kind of ideal that you impose on society, that you just abstract from society and say, ooh, let's, let's do that. It's something that emerges out of the economic base. The economic base of society gave us a sense. So Mar- Marx says, uh, man never sets himself a problem for which he doesn't already have the solutions. So the economic base of society was already evolving away from feudalism to the extent that we could start to have this idea of fundamental human equality, which was extraordinary for its time, because obviously during feudalism, you had the idea of the, you know, the uh, Christian paternalist ethic, where the rulers were meant to be rulers, that was their nature, and they should be good rulers, they should be benevolent rulers, and the peasant is meant to be a peasant, that is his nature, the slave is meant to be a slave, and so on. And there's this difference between human beings that accounts for where they are in society. With capitalism and the idea of quote-unquote free trade, you had the idea of free individuals that trade with each other on the basis of equals. And so we have this sense that comes from society, the basis of society, the changing economic base. We have a different idea of what it means to be human. We see a glimmer of possibility of human equality. Now, that is something that is created by the base, but we're not fully free. We are not obviously equals. (laughs) But as that base develops, you can start to see a basis for a society in which the um, scarcity that had created social classes more or less in the past, or at least which had kept them in check, is starting to disappear. We have no idea how to get there. But we can imagine and we can see that capitalism is creating every day a basis of wealth and abundance that it removes potentially that coercion. So I am free, I'm freer than I would have been as a peasant. Where I'm born in life doesn't necessarily dictate what I'm going to become, although statistically there are some regularities. But I have to sell my labor to any capitalist who will buy it. I'm not free to not do that unless I'm a capitalist myself or I can live off of other people who've done that. So I have this fundamental basis of coercion. But we can imagine that we could possibly remove that because we're producing things so, so cheaply, a basis of comfort that uh, removes that coercion. We just don't know how to distribute these things in a way that isn't based on commodity production. You can't figure that out. But the point is not to just impose equality on the world. That's crazy. The point is to allow for the development of the economic base to its logical conclusion. Then what people become, how we will organize society. I don't know. In the same way that people in feudalism who were engaging in capitalism weren't sitting there like, oh, yeah, we're going to have the state's going to be like this and uh, we'll we'll organize commodity production like that. It was already developing. And the French Revolution allowed for the ideals that were developing within that society to burst free of the feudal relations. Now we have these contradictions within capitalism. The economic base is outgrowing the the capitalist mode of production, but we have no idea how to set it free. And that is my interest, is understanding that deeper economic base. And I don't think talking about what really makes human beings happy and so on is really all that helpful. I don't think fetishizing equality is really all that helpful. I'm interested in where society is going. And I wish that the conversation that we were having as a society was on that. Where is society taking us? Because it's always moving. It's always changing. You know, you can't hold on to the present. If we want to be able to change the world, we have to understand it. So we are in a, a crisis, obviously, and the quarantine seems to be aggravating various um, issues that are already present for us, especially in Europe, which I can, I can speak to more. Considering what you've just said and bridging it to the original direction we took in this conversation about happiness, uh, where do you see this quarantine situation taking us if You've got a crystal ball in front of you there, uh, (laughs) both in terms of the impact it might have on the individual and society in its relationship with something like happiness and the present moment and this tendency to retreat from external problems, as well as our, our current economic situation, which is obviously being shaken to its very core by the quarantine, especially if you're looking at the whole thing from Italy, where we've been in this for over a month already. 
I've been so reluctant to talk about it because the situation is changing all the time. Sure. And I've been struggling to really get my head around it. I did mm. under great duress. I did a live stream because I do regular live streams. And I've, I've actually had to stop them because I, I honestly, I don't know. And so I, I did yeah. a live stream and even just three days later, I changed my mind. <laughs> I just, I can't figure out what's happening right now. But okay. I think what has worried me a lot is this sort of misanthropic um, streaking culture is really laid bare for what it is like you know it's like any sign or evidence that people are stupid everyone just jumps on <laughs> and people who are think of themselves as progressive you know lobbying the state for quite serious removal of freedom with an uncertain endpoint is quite terrifying obviously we need the removals of freedom right now but you have to be very careful about asking for that. I mean, we had like, for instance, like Israel declared a state of emergency from which it never emerged. <laughs> like, mm. you know, you have to be careful when you ask a state to remove your freedoms that there is that you do that with a clear commitment to freedom in mind to the presumption of um, freedoms after the emergency has passed. But of course, throughout history, emergencies have been used as regardless of whether or not they're real and necessary are used as pretexts for um, the removal of freedom. Mm -hmm. And so that's, that's something that really concerns me. And I feel like what's, so we were headed for a recession anyway. I think one of the things that's a little bit concerning is that the pandemic may become kind of um, a stick to beat the working class with. So obviously workers suffer quite a lot during recessions and depressions, right? You, you lose, you know, job security. Um, you are forced to work for below subsistence wages, you lose your pensions, all that sort of thing. And the idea that this is due to special circumstances and we're all in this together and the sort of military language worries me in that I think we're going to, we're not going to fight back against that as much as we should. Mm. About, you said, where does happiness and retreat um, fit into this? That's a very interesting question because actually the role that we've been asked to play as citizens is to retreat into our own homes and into our own little worlds and to practice self-care. When actually that wasn't the initial response. So there were a lot of um, volunteer organizations that popped up and people were coming up with some really creative solutions um, to helping, for instance, older people who couldn't leave their homes or, or didn't want to leave their homes. And that was kind of stamped out. And it was kind of like, no, you are going to play, a, play a, a passive role in this. You must play a passive role. That's kind of interesting, this idea increasingly of this sort of self-contained idea of what we're meant to do. When health becomes the ultimate goal of life, there's nothing meaningful beyond simply prolonging life. Now, of course, like zoo animals are very healthy and live a long time, but they live in cages. You know, we, it's important to have some perspective. And I think that this, for a long time, health has supplanted every other value in society as the ultimate legitimating discourse. We need to be careful about that because I'm not saying that we should leave lockdown. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just saying we need to be careful about losing other values along the way. Hmm. In a crisis, um, some old values do reemerge. Here in Italy, things might be slightly different from wherever you are right now. It's been interesting to see actually waves of different kinds of collective response to the situation. Italy um, has, I think, more similarities to Greece than it does to the UK. And Italians are notoriously famous for not being very good at following the rules. But they've actually been generally on the whole pretty good at respecting the, the rules that were laid down for the coronavirus situation. I think partly because we've got this odd hybrid government and Giuseppe Conte decided straight from the start to be as honest as possible about exactly what was going on. And I think that inspired citizens to have a certain degree of trust in him, which is a great rarity um, for Italians and for those of us who've been living here a while. But one thing that's been happening is people are finding new ways to slow down and reconnect and provide services to each other and help each other out. And I think there's also something interesting to be said about the, the difference in contagiency rates between Italy and Germany. And what they're starting to say now is that partly that's due to social practices. So Italians often live with parents and grandparents within very uh, close vicinity, and therefore the virus was transmitted far more. Plus, obviously, Italians are far more tactile than Germans who tend to <laughs> be less physical with each other. But I found that interesting. It's not that I've thought about it a great deal, but I found it interesting as a kind of mirror to the consequences of social practices at a very, very basic level. 
You know, are we uh, gregarious, affectionate, touchy beings? Therefore, do we kill each other? Or are we offish, <laughs> distant and cold, and therefore we survive? And I think into some sort of abstract way that relates to what you were saying is like, what values do we carry within ourselves and within social norms? And what consequences are there to them? Because I think, well, at least in Italy, when you talk about physical health and the duty of a business or a school or society to ensure that your physical health is safe no matter what, it tends to become a discourse of legality. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, what happens is if you don't protect each other's health, it's not that we're actually doing something good for each other. You will be sued or taken to court by not doing so. And I think it's interesting how in Britain and America that's leaked into mental health. Yeah. And a lot of mental health discourse, right? It's not really about caring for each other. It's more about who will have the consequences if you are not happy or if you have a psychological breakdown. In that regard, I'm sorry to sound slightly optimistic, which is not something I do that often. The return of the Stoics is quite nice because they do kind of provide an interesting uh, means for navigating the discourse that we've been burdened by of, of, you know, personal responsibility for everything, in that they don't deny the need for individuals to find some purpose or some robustness in approaching the challenges of the world, both internally and externally, but they do so without fitting that back into the discourse of mental health and well-being and happiness. But anyway, I think you're right about the, uh, the economic problems that we're facing and that they're almost inevitable that we're already in the works. But as somebody who's been across the world to a degree, you know, from Canada to Greece and to Wales of all places, <laughs> and you know, now you're living in a, a country which is kind of leaving Europe, how do you cope with all that? I mean, within your discourse, in your family, within your relationship, within your role as a professor and as a teacher, and as a mother, um, how are you dealing with your own need for robustness? Are you able to kind of uh, carry on nurturing some of those tools and tricks and discourses that you picked up when you were younger from self-help and self-development and from the more recent material from mindfulness that you've seen, academically speaking? What do you do with all that? Do you merely sort of set it aside and say, actually, all that matters is really a focus on the social and the political and economic? Or do you, do, do you still provide some space to, I don't know, consider what the Stoics might advise you to do in a crisis or do a bit of mindfulness practice yourself? <laughs> and do you feel any kind of responsibility to share that with your kids? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Um, yeah, so actually, every time that I'm like tempted to fall into myself and to yeah. think excessively about my own self, mm. I remember what I learned from all that self-help um, and the, you know, I'm, I've read probably, gosh, I don't know, maybe I've read about a hundred, at least, at least a um, hundred, maybe two hundred self-help books. Like studied mm. them and coded them, mm-hmm. and probably about at least ten thousand articles. Oh my god! Over, over the last maybe a hundred years of newspaper discourse, at least I would say, mm. over the last like ten years. Um. And so all of these sort of like tips and tricks were all in my head. And I do everything I can to avoid that. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I just, I don't think all that much about my feelings. Um, When I was a a teenager, I was invited, you know, I thought that it was just science, you know, I thought that was just the way that human beings were. And that's how you're supposed to be. I was invited to think about my feelings all the time. And Mm. I was miserable. (laughs) I was miserable. And ironically, when I came across the, the sort of sea change for me was I read Frank Ferreira's book, Therapy Culture, Mm. when I was um, 21, I think, or 20. And uh, it was like a revelation. I I didn't realize that these discourses had a history. I thought it was just like scientific discovery. This is the way human beings are. This is how we're supposed to act. And I didn't realize that there was a lot of debate about this and also that human beings had been different throughout history, are different in different cultures, respond differently to different things depending upon the meaning systems that are available to them. And that we don't really have that much of a meaning system left beyond the self. Um, And so that invitation to think of myself as mentally wounded constantly um, made me really miserable. Um, And I don't really think about myself uh, all that often. And I... I am much better off for that. And, <laughs> and I, you know, when it comes to my, what I do is I try to problem solve. You know, when there's an issue that comes up in my life, um, I try to solve that problem. I don't need like a 10 step thing before you do this, buy my book. 
no, I just kind of figure out, can I solve this problem? I discuss it with my family and so on. Um, and it kind of reminds me of like slavery. Like when we were in an economic system that uh, favored slavery, it seemed as though that would never end. That was just the way things were. And people used all sorts of naturalistic discourses to justify it. And I can well imagine people at the time being like, well, look, we got to figure out how to end slavery. And people are like, oh, come on, you know, look at the slaves. They're suffering. <laughs> you know, they have clear mental health problems. <laughs> they, you know, before we can ever solve slavery, you need to build up your self-efficacy 10 steps every day. And then somehow, some way we will deal with slavery. No, we mm -hmm. need to understand where slavery fit into things. Um, but also we needed to, um, well, there, there was a there was ultimately a civil war that um, ended that economic system once and for all, but it was already changing. It was already changing based on the economic system. So having a project in my life that is meaningful, things in which I'm very, very interested, that is, in a way, my therapy. <laughs> yeah. Um, Writing a book is really difficult. I don't recommend it. Like, if you want to be happy, don't write a book. It's terrible. <laughs> sucks. But it's worthwhile. It's worth. Yeah suffering for worth that difficulty and i don't really think about the fact that it's hard i try not to to think about um to uh, think too much about my own feelings because i think the project that i'm engaged in is meaningful and that's what i want to pass on to my daughter is to be interested in things beyond herself that in many ways yourself which is you know not something that you're born with anyway it's something you develop through your engagement with the world um, that that's not really all that interesting, that, you know, space and history and dinosaurs and paleontology and all of these things are very, very interesting. And in a way, that kind of reminds me of, ironically, the happiest time in my life, which is when I was a very young child and I was outside playing all the time and uh, very interested in, all, in learning about things. I had this hunger for knowledge and so on. I don't think I realized that I had a self until I was much, much older. And I started to be educated in these psychological discourses from a very young age, about, I think around age nine was when the whole self-esteem movement became really powerful. I honestly think it made, it messed me up quite a lot. Like I, I started to think about myself constantly. I started to read about, and actually a lot of these new agey things and became, and turned inward. And it took about 10 years to get out of that and um, to be interested in it, to rediscover this sort of childlike curiosity about mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, curiosity, fundamental. Now, I'm going to ask you to go back to your crystal ball, if you don't mind. What do you see coming down the road then in terms of the replacement for mindfulness, which is, well, it's been around for a few years now. Are we, are we coming up on a decade? Is it time for something new to come along? Because we are seeing more sustained and developed critique of it uh, mm -hmm. from Ron, Ron Peirce's work on the relationship between mindfulness and neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. um, what, what could be next? Any, any ideas, any thoughts? Yeah, it's on the wane. It's been on the wane for a while. So it reached its peak actually really, really quickly, which is interesting because I think these things are, are happening quicker. Like yeah. mental hygiene lasted much longer than these, than these sort of waves do. I'm not sure. I did see when I was um, analyzing the mindfulness discourse uh, in detail, there were a few things that people were starting to throw up. But I think that mental health, the emergence of mental health as this sort of new magic bullet mental health promotion, but also mental health as an explanation and solution for everything, is an interesting development because it is such a complete problematization of the mind and the self and emotion. It is um, what Hegel would call a sublation. So it, it's not just negating what came before, it's taking all of these things to a higher level, like a full <laughs> problemization yeah, yeah. of the self. And so I think that's what's come up. It was already coming up and grew out of the uh, well-being discourse, this uh, extension of that problem. So people were like, oh, why shouldn't we promote well-being? Well, because at the, at the heart of it, it said it, it was something that had to be promoted. Like it's something that people just didn't do, you know. You know, it wasn't something that people just had when there weren't problems. It was something that you also needed to attend to. And so the idea of mental health promotion isn't that mental health is something you simply have when you don't have any issues. It's something that has to be actively promoted, which says that the individual without intervention is fundamentally problematic. Um, and so that the problemization of the self is total. I'm not sure, but I think mental health has a capacity to have a much 
deeper and prolonged kind of staying power than any of these mm. earlier discourses. Interesting. Yeah, maybe that's um, one of the reasons intuitively I started getting annoyed with listening to Sam Harris, because uh, he was one of the early adopters of well-being and kept promoting it. And it's just, uh, I don't know, I think there's something about the, the semiotic value of certain terms. Mm-hmm. They kind of resonate badly sometimes when you can feel they're just like picking up all this uh, baggage and the person using the term is not being honest enough about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I discuss this in my book that they use the term because it, it connects with you and you go, well, that can't possibly be bad. Um, but what they truly mean by it is something very different than what you mean by it. Yeah. Uh, and they, never, they don't actually say that. Like the way that I described it, it's used as a floating signifier. So it floats and, and nobody defines it publicly. But actually in that person's mind or even in policy, it is foreclosed. The meaning is foreclosed. It's not open to debate. It's not open for you to define. We know science says this is what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And the vagueness of it means that people can do what they want with it really, can't they? Especially if they're they're using it to promote one policy or practice or another. So And it, and it allows people to say, oh, that's not what I mean. <laughs> right. Yes. It's actually yes. this, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And it mutates, of course, as well, which is one of the features of neoliberalism, I guess, this capacity to mutate um, indefinitely in order to adjust to critique and, you know, survive nonetheless. But uh, mm-hmm. Ashley, uh, I'm aware we've got to an hour and uh, I've taken up some of your time. Thank you for coming on and speaking to us about these many varied topics and uh, best of luck with the quarantine and your work. One thing um, I didn't get to express fully was just the variety of topics that you have written about and sources as well. You're one of those people that's not, um, how should I say, well, trapped in, in one particular political sphere. You seem to be able to move across a variety of different publications without it causing you too much harm. <laughs> so, you know, although you've spoken about, <laughs> right, okay, there we go. You've spoken about Marx, and I don't have a huge much, um, amount to say about Marx. I've seen you associate to some small degree with figures like Douglas Murray. And of course, you've been on Zero Books and you've been on the BBC, you've been on Channel 4, so you've been all over the place. So good for you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just like to talk to anybody. I, I just like talking to people, even if I disagree with them profoundly. Yeah, well, we need that, don't we? That's been one of the, the negative consequences of all this mental health and uh, uh, social justice talk and the relationship between the two has meant that a lot of people have sort of refused to speak to each other, which is such a shame because... I agree with you. We need, we need more and more conversations where people are actually tested to think differently or at least uh, critique their own ideas. And perhaps some of us will manage to come up with something interesting, useful to help us progress socially and not just individually. But yeah, absolutely. anyway, yeah, all the best. Take care of yourself. And, Thank you. Uh, you too. Uh, bye for now. Bye-bye.